You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. Father, thank you for your Son, for he is exalted over all. There is no one to whom all praise belongs. It is only you, Jesus. You alone receive all the praise because there's no one like you and there's no one who has done the things you've done. There's no one who has said the things you have said and fulfilled every one of your promises. And we praise you. We bless your name. That's why we're gathered here. We gathered around that name, the name of Jesus Christ. And so we come to you as our Savior and Lord. So we ask that you would speak your word to your people as Lord. You've written it down for us. So now, Lord, help us. Give us ears to hear and a heart that receives your word that we may live it and enjoy it and enjoy you, God, in it. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. As you're grabbing your chairs, if you can grab your Bibles as well. And turn open to 1 Samuel. We're continuing in the series in 1 Samuel uh, that we've been going through. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. Uh, The ushers are coming down the aisle giving out Bibles. Just raise your hand and they'll put one happily in that hand. And flip it open to 1 Samuel. It's it's about that way, maybe that far into your Bible. And uh, we're going to be in chapter 12. Chapter 12. Well, I remember I was at home just enjoying a relaxing moment uh, just in the dining room area when down the stairs came the screams of injustice and threats of revenge from children's voices just came floating down the stairs to my ears and I thought, I need to do something or there may be fewer people around the kitchen table tonight for supper. So I ran up the stairs to find myself Uh, in the hallway, and just what used to be in the hallway, a a fun, exciting play area had transformed into a courtroom, and I had just kind of stepped in unawares as now the judge, and already one of my children was playing the role of a crown attorney and prosecuting another one of my children, trying to extract some guilty confession out of him or her but to no avail. And so now witnesses had gathered, our three other kids and a barking dog, and they were all yelling and barking, their version of what happened. And I just thought, you're all guilty. Just, you're grounded, every one of you. But I didn't say that. I thought, well, I should probably just begin to ask, what happened? What went down here? What are the facts? And try to figure out the truth. And then what the next steps are to make things right. And I don't know if that's ever happened to you where the uh, court of justice just impromptu shows up at your house, but it usually does every week at ours. And it does here in chapter 12 of 1 Samuel. We have a situation here where there's a big celebration. Everyone's having this party. And then all of a sudden it transforms into a serious courtroom situation where there's a judge, there's an attorney, and the accused. And so we pick it up here in chapter 12, and even just a little bit before that to get an idea of what's been going on. So in chapter 11, verse 14, we read, Samuel said to the people, Come, come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. And so all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they sacrificed peace offerings, Before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. They rejoiced greatly. So here we have Samuel summoning. He summons all of Israel. Let's go to Gilgal. And he summons them. But Israel thinks, ah, this is a party invitation. Of course we're going to Gilgal. We're going to party. And they're celebrating the fact that they have this new king, called Saul, and they had just won this big, big victory over the Ammonites. So it's time for a party. They're very excited. 
Now, you'll remember that what had happened was this nation, this neighboring enemy nation called the Ammonites, had come and was threatening to attack one of the cities of Israel. And instead of crying out to the Lord, they went to Samuel and demanded that they get a king, a human king, a king like the other nations, so that that new human king would fight their battles and not God. And so they had rejected God as their king. And in rejecting God, they had broken the covenant relationship they had with the Lord. And when Samuel went to the Lord and said, they're asking for a king, God says, give them what they're asking for. Give them Saul, whose name, Saul, literally means asked for. And it was a sign of judgment that God was handing Israel over to their own sin, to their own idolatry. You want a king? A king like the nations? A worldly king? Here you go. I will give you one. And Samuel says, no, let's, let's gather the whole nation and go to Gilgal to renew the kingdom. Now, this doesn't mean that he was renewing Saul's kingdom and commitment to Saul. No, he's wanting to renew Israel's commitment to the Lord and renewing the Lord's kingdom. That Israel and their new king, Saul, are still under the true king, the Lord. And they need to get things right with their true king, the Lord. Because they broke the covenant. They rejected him. And Samuel's like, we got to get this right. And so he calls everyone to Gilgal. Now in verse 15, you see here that they're offering peace offerings. Now that's great. Peace offerings are great. But you often see them paired with things like sin offerings or burnt offerings. Those were to deal with sin before the peace offerings could be offered in order to get right with God. But you notice that there's no sin offerings, no burnt offerings, because Israel doesn't even think they've sinned. They don't, they don't even think that anything's wrong. I mean, we are here to party. God is just, or Saul, I should say. Saul has just won this great victory. We're here to celebrate. Uh, thank you, God. Yes, here's some peace offerings, but isn't Saul great? And they've come with the total wrong expectations. And so Samuel basically, as a prophet, has to pick up the gown of a lawyer as a prosecuting attorney and begin to lay a case against Israel. Because if he's going to renew the covenant, then they have to, Israel has to get to a point of repentance. And before they can get to repentance, they actually have to admit that they've sinned. And before they can even get to the point of admitting they've sinned, they have to be aware of the fact that they've sinned. And so Samuel's got to start right at square one. And so as a lawyer, Samuel begins to lay his case against Israel. And so he does, starting in chapter 12. He said to all of Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me. And have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you. And I am old and gray. And behold, my sons are with you. Samuel begins his case by saying that he's innocent. He's innocent. He wasn't in cahoots with Israel in their rebellion against God. He wasn't a part of their sin. He didn't lead them into sin. He didn't provoke them to sin. He's innocent. And the first way he shows that he's innocent is that he said, I obeyed your voice. When you said, we don't want you as our judge and leader anymore. We want a king. He let go of his office. He relinquished it. He didn't hold on to it like a tyrant, like a cruel dictator and holding on to his, his office. No, he didn't do that. Even the good judges and leaders that God had given in the book of Judges that were leading up to 1 Samuel, even they, when, when they were put in the role of judge and leader of Israel, they were doing that until the day they died. But not Samuel. Samuel gives it up. 
Why? Why would Samuel do that? Why would he? Why would there be no, uh, you know, positioning and power struggle or this sense of entitlement to this role? Or I, I deserve this role, God. I put in a lot of time. This is so unfair. We don't hear any of that from Samuel. And I, th- I think it's because Samuel knew all along that even though he was the judge, he knew who the real king was. It was never a point of confusion for him. He always knew that the Lord is king of his people and that he was leader and judge under the Lord. Whatever the Lord said, that's what he would say to the nation of Israel again and again and again. And if God said, give them what they've asked for, give them a king, Samuel says, yes, Lord. And he submits to the king. So he's innocent in this matter. Samuel doesn't hold on to this office. He, he gives it up without any angst, without any bitterness. And that can be hard, right? I mean, there's times in our life where there's been some injustice that's happened to us. We, we should have got this. We should have been given this, but we didn't. Maybe it was a promotion at work. You got looked over. And even though you knew you put in the time, even though you knew you deserved that, and it was kind of coming to you, and you got looked over. And there can be a bitterness, and, and you just kind of hold on to that. Or maybe as a parent, you know you, you want your, parent, your children to obey you and respect you, but they don't. And there's this angst. You're just like, you have any idea the sacrifices I make for you? And there can be this bitterness that can fester like a thorn in your flesh until God says what he said to Samuel. When they dishonor you, when they reject you, they're really dishonoring and rejecting me. Don't take it personal. Point them to me. Direct them to me. Cast all your cares upon me, the Lord says. I will deal with it. I will speak to them. And as we see here, God does that eventually with Israel. And so I think that's why Samuel can, can really, without bitterness, surrender that role of judge and leader of Israel and give it up. So he's innocent in that matter. But he's also innocent in another matter. He says, I've, I haven't done you any wrong, even when I was judge and leader. I did you no wrong. Verse 3 and 4 say, here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. That's King Saul, who was anointed king. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? That would be kind of like the equivalent of a car or your job. Whose have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Who did I cheat? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it, to show partiality or favoritism? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. And they said, you haven't defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. He was innocent. They they admit, they declare that Samuel is innocent. Samuel gave them no reason to reject him as a leader or as a judge. He was a great leader. There's no reason why they would want another. But they did. And so Samuel declares his innocence. Verse 5 says, the Lord is witness against you and his anointed, that's Saul, he's witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. Well, that's interesting. Have you ever had a situation where uh, kids do this often, where they know they're caught? I mean, they're caught red-handed. They know they're, they've sinned. There's no way out. They know they have to admit it, but they're kind of selective on who they admit it. They're just like, yeah, I did that. Yeah, I'll admit that to you, but I'm not going to admit it to that person over there. And that's the kind of situation that you have here, is that Israel's just like, yeah, 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 you're, in, you're innocent toward us. You didn't you weren't a part of our sin. Yes, yeah, Saul's witness, but I'm not going to admit it to God. They don't even acknowledge God's presence. They say the singular, he is witness. They're referring to Saul. Yeah, I'll admit it to Saul, but I'm not going to admit it to the Lord. They're not even acknowledging that he's there. They don't even acknowledge that he's king. They have so disregarded God, he's not on the radar at all. 
Yeah, just earlier they were celebrating and offering lip service. Like, yeah, thanks God for Saul, but we've got Saul. Isn't Saul great? And they're just offering some lip service for God, but their heart was far from him. They, they, they had set him aside long ago. And so Samuel is saying no. And in verse 6 he said, the Lord is witness. He caught what they said. You can't just pretend God's not here. He is here. He is witness to all that has happened, not only for me and my innocent ways towards you. I've been good to you. But he's also witness to how he has treated you. And he is here both as witness and as judge. That the Lord God is judge. And we see that. And Samuel's trying to get their eyes back on the Lord. And so he says in verse 7, Therefore stand still, that I may plead with you before who? Before the judge, the Lord. Concerning what? Well, concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. I don't know if you've ever been in those awkward situations where, you know, the heat's starting to come. And you're like, oh, that would be a good time to get out of here and kind of grab your bags. And you can just see Israel, as Samuel's talking to them, getting really awkward. And some people kind of near the back starting to sneak out. And he's like, no, 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 no. Stand still and listen to what the Lord has done for you. They're starting to feel the heat, and he's like, stand still. I want to remind you of how good God has been. We've just looked at that I've been good to you, and I've been, I'm innocent toward you, but we're going to look at how good God has been to you. He has not given you any reason to reject him either. And so he begins to recount all the righteous deeds of the Lord, like when they were oppressed and enslaved in Egypt. And they cried out to the Lord, God, have mercy on us. Deliver us. And God heard their cry. And he showed them mercy. And he sent them, Moses and Aaron, to rescue them out of their sin and out of their slavery. Or when God brought them into the promised land, as he promised. And things were going so well and so good that it says they forgot the Lord, their God. And they turned away from God and they forsook God. And turned their hearts toward other gods that were no gods. The Baals and the Ashtoreths and Moloch. Who their worship practices demanded such evil atrocities of murders and adulteries and child sacrifices. And they gave themselves over to that. And God says, if you want that, I'm going to give you exactly what you've asked for. And he hands them over to their idolatry and to the nations who those gods belonged to. And they came and warred against Israel and oppressed them and defeated them and ruled over them and brought suffering and pain and enslavement into their life. And they remembered the Lord. Israel's like, what are we doing? And they turned back to the Lord and they said, Lord, have mercy on us. And God heard their cry. And he came and sent them again and again, people like Gideon and Jephthah and Barak and Samson, and Samuel, again and again, showing them mercy as a good king, always sending deliverance, bringing them back, being faithful, time and again. There wasn't anything that the Lord could have done more that he didn't already do. He had been such a perfect king to Israel. There was no reason why they should have turned their back on him. But in verse 12, we read, as Samuel's describing this history, But when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, that was the recent battle that had just happened, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. Samuel makes his case very clear. He lays the charge out. He says, Israel, you have, you have traded, you've exchanged God for Saul. And you have committed treason. You, Israel, are accused of treason. And they 
they're accused of treason because of this trade, this exchange that they had done. That's basically what happens every time we sin. We're trading God. We're like, here, I'd rather give up God. I don't see him as very valuable in my eyes to get something else that I think is going to be way better. And when we do that exchange, that is what sin is. And at the core of that exchange is something called unbelief. We don't believe God. Unbelief is really at the heart of sin and at the heart of this exchange. We're saying, God, I do not believe you are worthy, that you are valuable, that you're able, that you're trustworthy. I don't think you're going to satisfy. So I'm going to give you up, I'm going to pawn you off, and I'm going to get something else, something I think is better, something I believe is going to be more powerful, more able, more satisfying, more capable of giving me what I want, whether it's kings or gods or powers or stuff. This is going to be way better, way more satisfying. And we do this horrendous exchange, this pawning off, this trade, and it's absolutely insane And Jeremiah 2 highlights the insanity of this kind of exchange. Jeremiah 2, 11, 13 says, Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory, that's the Lord, for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns. They've carved out these rain barrels for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God describes himself beautifully as this this fountain of living water, of fresh, clean, running water that Israel was meant to drink and be satisfied in. But Israel said, That's garbage water. I can go find better water than that. And they go over here and they dig in the ground these cisterns, these these rain barrels in the ground, hoping that some rain will fall and kind of run along the ground and the dirty ground and trickle into this rain barrel and collect. And they'd scoop up some water and say, this is way more satisfying. Only to find that these cisterns, these rain barrels, have cracks and holes in them. And they've leaked out all the water. So that the only thing that's left at the very bottom of these cisterns, these rain barrels, is this moist muck, this sludge and dirt and leaves and whatever decomposing animal has fallen into this rain barrel. And they're just kind of licking up the moist sludge going, mmm, that's way more enjoyable and satisfying than this fountain of living water. And God's like, Are you nuts? That is crazy. That's insane. But sin makes you stupid. Again and again and again. And God is saying, what are you doing? My people, what are you doing? Why are you going after these worthless, broken cisterns when the fountain of living water awaits you to satisfy you, to save you, and to deliver you? God is good. But you know, you know how, like, maybe you're talking to a friend and they've sinned, and you're just trying to help them become aware of that, and you're laying out the most clear argument, it's airtight, it makes sense, it's logical, so that beyond a shadow of a doubt, surely they would see that they've done some wrong, and they need to turn and get right with God again, and they're not getting it. And all they give you is kind of like, oh, and they're just rolling their eyes, and like, give me a break, come on. And that is a great time for a healthy dose of the fear of the Lord. It will go a long, long way in adding to a sound argument. And that's what Samuel is doing right now. He realizes, Israel's just kind of rolling their eyes at Samuel. He's like, okay, all right, we got it. You're innocent. God's innocent. So what? How do you know God's that upset? How do you know our sin's that big of a deal? I mean, we just won this victory. Didn't God just let us win this big victory? Obviously, he's not that upset with us. Otherwise, we wouldn't have won. Why are you so upset, Samuel? You know, like, sometimes we do that. You, like, ace the exam, and you think, surely God is blessing me. I'm, I'm right with God. I must be thrilling him. That's why he blessed my exam. Or, 
You just, as you're pulling into Costco, you realize that that parking spot right in front of the front doors is open. You just slide in. You're like, yes, Lord, I am in your favor. You're blessing me. I must be so good. We must be good. No. God doesn't bless us because we're so good and awesome. Because he is good and awesome. So gracious. But Israel's got it all confused. And so... Samuel is going to ask God to speak into the situation. And God does. He doesn't just give a word. He booms and thunders his verdict. It says that God will thunder from heaven and he will give his verdict. He will agree with Samuel and he says, guilty as charged. Israel, you are guilty. The verdict is guilty. Verse 17 says this loud and clear. Samuel says, isn't, isn't it wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. This is their dry season. This is the time where you are collecting crops. It's kind of like our fall. It's supposed to be relatively dry, but it's especially dry in Israel. There wasn't supposed to be any rain whatsoever at this time. And Samuel says, just so you know beyond a shadow of a doubt what God thinks, I'm going to ask God, that he may send thunder and rain. Literally, that word thunder means that he would send his voice. The same voice that is referred to in verse 14, that you would obey his voice. Verse 15, that you would obey the voice of the Lord. But they hadn't. And so now God is going to send his voice in thunder and rain. He's going to thunder his verdict and confirm that everything that Samuel has been laying out in front of you, Israel, is true. That you are guilty. This is kind of like God sending snow in July here in Ontario or hail in Trinidad any time of the year. Like it just is a supernatural work of God so that there would be no doubt what the Lord thinks. And this is, just, this is not just any thunderstorm. It's one of those, like, I'm going to die thunderstorms. Like, the sheets of rain are coming down so thick and heavy, you can't even find oxygen in between the rain. You, you can't even breathe. And the, the claps of thunder are so loud and coming so intensely, and one on top of the other, just piling. You can't even hear yourself think. You just think the sky is falling on you. And lightning coming so quick and so heavy and so close. The hair on your body is ra rising and falling. And you think, this is it. I, the next one's going strike me. That kind of a thunderstorm. God is thundering from heaven. It's the kind of thunderstorms God used to use in defeating Israel's enemies. You remember at the very beginning of Samuel's ministry, all of Israel had gathered and were with Samuel and the Philistines were approaching Israel to attack them and catch them off guard. And Samuel cried out to the Lord and the Lord thundered from heaven and routed the enemies of Israel and defeated the Philistines. But now the tables have turned. And now God is thundering against Israel as though they were the enemy of God now. Because they had broken the covenant with God. And he's thundering the threats of the curses of the covenant in a covenant, in agreement, a covenant is a, is a promise, a vow, in a relationship. And if there's obedience, there's blessing. But if there's disobedience and you break the covenant, there's curses. And Israel has broken the covenant. They've rejected God as their king. And God says he's thundering the potential of pouring out all the curses of the broken covenant on their head. And yet, thankfully... Israel gets the Lord's message loud and clear. In verse 19, all the people said to Samuel, Pray, pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. They admit it. They, they finally get it. They acknowledge we have, we have sinned. We have committed treason against God. And they turned to Samuel and said, Can you please pray for us? Please go to the Lord. Ask for mercy on our behalf. 
And Samuel takes off the gown of the lawyer, sets it aside, and puts on his priestly robes and begins to pray. Begins to intercede on behalf of Israel. And the most shocking words in this whole chapter are given in verse 20. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil yet, but do not be afraid. I mean, that, that should blow their minds. What, what are you saying, Samuel? We've sinned. We've committed treason. We broke the covenant. We did not love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. We didn't do it. We deserve God's judgment. We deserve the curses of the covenant. We deserve his wrath. As they said, we should die for the wages of sin is death. And we have sinned, Israel says. We deserve to die. What do you mean, Samuel? Do not be afraid. Haven't you, haven't you been listening to this thunderstorm? And Samuel says, do not be afraid. Yet there is still room for God's mercy. There's still some space here. There's still some, some room for God to bring restoration, for God to show you mercy, for God to work deliverance on your behalf. Yes, the verdict was guilty. But the sentence was mercy. Everything's leading up to that point. Everything's leading up to the point. We've sinned. God, you're a holy God, and we have broken the covenant. And God thunders from heaven. You are guilty as charged. The verdict is guilty. And just as the gavel is coming down, the sentence is mercy. Mercy. What? How can God do this? How can he give a sentence of mercy? And in verse 22, God gives us the answer. He says, for the Lord will not forsake his people. Israel, you don't need to be afraid. I will not forsake you. I won't turn my back on you like you turned your back on me. Even if you are faithless, I remain faithful, the Lord says. I will not forsake my people. Why? Why, God? Why won't you forsake them? Why are you so faithful? Keep reading. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. It was God's pleasure. It pleased the Lord to make Israel, his people, a people of his own possession that he would put his name on, that he would tie his reputation to, that he would join himself to, bind himself to, so that whatever happened to Israel was a reflection on the kind of God that Israel had. So that if Israel, if Israel was given a wonderful law like it was given in the Old Testament, it was a reflection of the goodness of God, how perfect he is. And if Israel is showing mercy, it's a reflection of how God is. And so God ties his reputation, his, his name, to the nation of Israel. And all the world is watching. They're watching what happens to Israel. Because that's going to tell us a lot about your God. What if Israel sins? And what if they fail? Is God going to be faithful? Is he able to carry them? Is he able to still save them? Is he able to fulfill all his promises to them? Can they screw up so bad? Can they fail so bad that it's beyond God's rescue? So that they are destroyed and wiped out. And all the nations would say, I guess we know how God really is. He's really powerless. What a weak God. What an impotent deity. Can't even save his people. Made all these promises. Yeah, I'm going to save you, bring you out of Egypt, help you, love you, bring you into the promised land. He's a, he's a promise breaker. You can't trust God. Look at his people. And God knows that. He knows what the nations are chirping. 
and he won't let his name be run through the mud among all the nations that are watching his love of Israel. God has tied his name to Israel, and so he says he must not forsake them for his great name's sake. Not because Israel is so great, not because they're worthy of mercy, because God is so great, and God is so worthy, and his name is so worthy, it cannot be gone, run through the mud. It cannot be profaned. It can't be sneered at or mocked or derided. God must find a way then to show mercy to his people again and again. He must find a way to save them for the sake of his name. Now, if you're thinking, that sounds great, but it doesn't sound fair. I mean, what about God's justice? I thought God was a holy God, and, and he just can't keep sweeping these sins under the rug that Israel keeps committing as if they didn't happen. I mean, what's the justice in that? Why is God doing this? Isn't he holy? Is he unjust? And we find here this growing tension all throughout the Old Testament. Growing, mounting, year after year, chapter after chapter in the Bible. This growing tension between how is God going to uphold the integrity of his great name if he said he's holy and just and he has to punish sin, but he has also made a promise to keep showing mercy and deliverance to his people. How is he going to do that? He's got to do both. He says he's holy and just. He says he's merciful. How is he going to do both in order to uphold his name? Because if, he, if one of these falls, so does his name. And this is this growing tension all throughout the Old Testament. The people of God feel it. Moses felt it. I mean, Israel just got out of Egypt and got to Mount Sinai, and God was making a covenant with them. They didn't even last a few hours, and they'd already broken the covenant. Already Moses is having to go back to God and ask for mercy. In Deuteronomy 9, Moses says, O Lord, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought up out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's a promise that God had made to the forefathers of Israel, that he would show them loyal, unfailing love, no matter what. Moses is like, remember that promise. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people, or their wickedness, or their sin, because if you do, we're done. Remember your promise of mercy. Lest the hand from which you brought us up, says, that is the Egyptians, unless the land, sorry, the land from which you brought us up, that's the Egyptians, say, well, because the Lord's not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, that he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Moses feels this tension. God, you're a holy God. We have sinned wickedly against you. But God, have mercy on us according to your promise that you told Abraham that you would. Don't treat us as our sins deserve. Don't, because if you do, the Egyptians will say that you are nothing. You can't save. You can't keep a promise. Don't let that happen, God. Show us mercy. God shows them mercy for the sake of his name. The psalmist feels this tension as well when he prays in Psalm 79. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? You feel the tension? God, we deserve, we deserve your punishment, but have mercy Oh God, atone for our sins, lest the nations deride you and curse you and mock you. For your namesake, have mercy. And this is exactly what God explains in Isaiah 48. He says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you. 
that I may not cut you off. But I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. I, I've caused you to suffer. I haven't poured out my wrath and decimated you and annihilated you and wiped you off the face of the earth. Though you deserve it because of your sins. I haven't done that. I've given you over to the very thing you were asking for, that you might suffer and wake up and turn back to me, that I might have mercy on you again and again. I'm refining you. For my own sake, for my own sake I do this. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God's glory. Remember Pastor Ted was talking about the glory of God. And what does that word mean? It literally means heaviness. The weight of God. God won't share his weight, his worth. What's being weighed? His value, his worth. If you take all of God's attributes and weigh them, and all of his words and promises and weigh them, and all of his righteous deeds and all that he has ever done and weigh them, you'd break the scale because his glory is infinite. He is of greatest worth and value. And this is his glory. There is no God like God. It's not like God is just one of many deities on the smorgasbord that he's just kind of in the, in the front runnings and he's the best one to pick. That's not it at all. There is no other God. There is only one true and living God. And God must say, I can't share that glory of being God with anyone else because there is no other God. I would be lying to you if I said, oh, there is a good second option over here. He can't. I'm the only one, he says. I am God. My name is unique. It is glorious of infinite worth and value. You can't weigh it. It's immeasurable in its treasuring, in its price. And so God must protect his name. So how's he going to do this? How's he going to resolve this tension between him being a holy and just God and a God who has made promises to have mercy on his people. How does he solve this dilemma? In Ezekiel 20, it says, You shall know that I am the Lord when I deal with you for my name's sake. Not according to your evil ways, not according to your corrupt deeds, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. God promises there is a day. There's a day coming when I will deal with this. I'll, I'll deal with this tension. I'll resolve this dilemma between my justice and my mercy. I will deal with it. And praise the Lord, brothers and sisters, that day came. There was a day when an angel announced to a group of shepherds in Luke 2... Fear not. It's the exact same words. Do not be afraid. Why? For behold, I bring good news of great joy that will be for all the people, not just Israel, but for all nations and all peoples. It's too small of a thing for God to work and resolve this tension for one nation. He will do it for all peoples. For behold, unto you is born this day in the city of David, that's Bethlehem, a Savior, a Deliverer, who is Christ. Christ means Messiah, means King, the Anointed King, who is Christ the Lord. That's why Mary explodes in song and worship in Luke 1. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why, Mary? He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy that he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and his offspring forever God never forgot that promise he always remembered it. even though Israel broke their covenant that they made at Sinai with Moses again and again and again and again and again God always remembered the previous promise he made to Abraham the father of the Jews I will show mercy I will show mercy, and I'm going to resolve this tension of my mercy and justice by sending my son. God has given his answers 
See the solution that God has given. He wasn't just sweeping our sins under the rug and pretending they weren't there all these years. He knew they were there. He was showing us mercy and stockpiling all of his punishment that those sins deserved. Remember, the wages of sin is death. He was stockpiling all of that for the time where he would send his son and pour them out on his son, Jesus Christ. The true king, the incarnate king, fully God and fully man who has come as not only the king of the Jews, but the ruler of all nations. A king who came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom. He purchased us back. He satisfied God's justice. That's why in Romans 3, Paul explains what God has done in this way. He says, this king is Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation That means a way in which his justice is satisfied. By his blood, that means on the cross when Jesus died, to be received by faith. Paul's saying, if you believe by faith, putting your trust in this Christ Jesus, and in his death on the cross, which satisfied God's justice, you'll be forgiven and saved and delivered. Why is that so important, Paul? Why did Jesus have to come? Because this was to show God's righteousness, that he was right, that he was holy, that he's been just all along. He hasn't been compromising. And it was to show, oh, sorry, that God is righteous because of his divine forbearance, had passed over former sins. He had been stockpiling them. He had been waiting. He had passed over. He didn't pour out his punishment He was waiting. He was reserving it. He was holding it back. For who? For what day? For his son on that day on the cross. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God, through Jesus, has now become just and justifier. Well, how how did that work? Because God the Father gave God the Son as a sacrifice for sin. So that when Jesus was actually on the cross, he actually took our sins. The sins of all of God's people, past, present, and future. Put them all on his Son, King Jesus, and died on the cross. He paid the death penalty for our sins. The eternal hell death penalty on the cross. So that all of God's justice is satisfied. The penalty really was paid. And Jesus has won and purchased this freedom, this deliverance, this forgiveness for all those that God shows mercy to. So now God has vindicated his name. He's upheld the integrity of his name. Look, I am just. I am righteous. I haven't compromised. And I'm now able to show mercy legitimately. I haven't cut any corners. I can honestly say to every sinner who turns to me in my Christ Jesus that I can forgive them and wash away all their sins and clothe them with my righteousness, crediting to them Jesus' perfect life so that they might have eternal life and be delivered and rescued and saved. God, through Christ, has now become just and the justifier of all those who put faith in Jesus Christ, the true and eternal King. And if we trust in this Jesus and put our faith in him, then what is said in 1 Peter 2 is true of you. Peter says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. If you're trusting in Jesus, that means he's put his hand on you. He's now tied his name to you. He's now going to be faithful to you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. Surely he'll be with you always to the very end of the age. He never breaks his promise. He's tied his name to you. He will always show you goodness and mercy all the days of your life. And you shall return to the house of the Lord and dwell with him forever. He was faithful to save and finish the job. He will work it out to the very end. 
He has called you a people of his own possession. Why? So that you might proclaim the excellencies of him. The excellency of his glorious name who called you out of darkness and brought you into his marvelous light. This is the God who has saved us. This is the God who has put his name on us. What a God we serve. What a God we serve. This is no small thing. Beloved, let us not waste our time in going after broken cisterns and going after cheap substitutes. They'll only leave us in misery and unsatisfied desires and pain and sin. Lord, let us go to the fountain of living water, Jesus Christ, who freely gives of himself to us that he might deliver us and rescue us and put his name on us. Let us pray to this God and Savior and then sing to him. Father, we are saved to sing. Sing your name and the glory of your name. Lord, you have shown yourself that there is no God like our God. And we bless you and say thank you and honor you. For you have all the glory and honor and dominion and power forever and ever. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Oh, Father, what a joy it is to be brought into your kingdom, to have your name placed on us, that all your promises are true for us who trust in Jesus. God, we thank you. You are faithful. You are holy and just and the justifier of the unrighteous. And it's legit for you to do it. You didn't cut any corners. We bless your name. Oh, praise the name of the Lord, our God. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.